0: Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls.
1: Uh, We are working through uh, our Advent series. Uh, Let me go ahead and pray for us. And let's get uh, started and open up God's word together. Uh, Father, I thank you so much, uh, just for uh, my friends here at King's Cross, for my brothers, my sisters and for their, their families and guests that may have be, uh, that may possibly be here for child dedication. Um, God is a good thing when Christian parents um, commit to raising their child in the ways of the Lord. I pray, God, that just this, this uh, dedication, sort of ceremony that we've done uh, would just be more than just a rope exercise, but I would just uh, uh, result in real fruit in the lives of these families. Um, as we kick off our Advent series now, we remember just the great hope and the reality that we need hope. We need hope, and we thank you, Lord, for bringing hope to us at Christmas time in your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Uh, So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, we're gonna skip around a bit. We're gonna start in Romans eight. Uh, Advent, uh, for those of you that know, this Christmas season uh, leading up to Christmas day uh, throughout church history has been known as the Advent season. And Advent simply means arrival. It's a time where we celebrate that hope has arrived that we are not left to ourselves in the mess that this world has become, but that hope has arrived in Jesus and it's going to arrive to its fullest fulfillment at the end of all time when Jesus returns. That's what we look forward to, and that's what we look back to at the Advent season. It's the one time of year where uh, it seems that it's okay for anybody to play songs that are all about Jesus, right? You hear on the radio, at the mall, at the gym, right? Uh, Everybody seems to have this big argument around this time of year. When is it okay to start playing Christmas songs? I mean, it's after, uh, not only is it after Thanksgiving, but we're into December, and so hopefully Everybody knows you're in the clear now, right? But uh, uh, it's, it's just a wild thing that this is a cultural conversation that we have about songs related to Christmas. Now, why is it? Why is it that we have this conversation at this time of year? Why is it that the Western world seems to have this regular rhythm of joy and celebration? I want you to stop and think about what it is that we're celebrating why we have these songs. Why we have these celebrations. Why we have all the decorations and the Christmas cheer. All of it echoes the good news of the very first Christmas. And that is something that, that has brought hope to the world. The true meaning of Christmas is that hope is finally here. Hope is here. Traditionally in Advent season, um, uh, 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 we go through uh, four major themes of Advent beginning with hope. Hope, love, love. Peace and joy. We're going to look at hope uh, today and then uh, love and peace uh, over the next couple weekends. And then we are going to have a service um, on Christmas Day uh, where we'll have another shortened service uh, to talk about the joy that Christmas brings. And today, like I said, we're talking about how hope has arrived. I want us to look at three points from the text that we're going to look at this morning. The first point is this. I want us to consider the reality of our longing. Just the stark reality that we all long for for something more. We all long for hope. Every single one of us, regardless of your creed or faith tradition, whether you're a Christian or not, every single one of us has to own the fact that we know that there's something wrong with this world. That there are things about it uh, that make us go, this is not how it should be. With all the evil, the suffering, the pain, like, why does it feel that things are not what they should be? Where does this aching feeling come from? In Romans 8 verse 22, it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's a big graphic, I know. But that word groaning comes up in a handful of times throughout Romans 8, and it's a word uh, that, that, that describes what it, what it sounds like to be in pain. People groan when they break a limb, right? They groan when they're dying. They groan when they're in labor. They grow when they're in pain. We groan when we grieve. The original Greek word there is also used... Um, not just for general groaning, but it's specifically used also for the the groanings that happen on a battlefield that 's the etymology of that Greek word it's the groanings that happen on a battlefield. I think if you watch uh, Hollywood, I uh, like war movies, um, they, they do their best to try and con- convey this uh, the, the way that this this feels and this, they just by the way they illustrate it but but I think even the best even the best war movies have a hard time really conveying the grim reality of war. If you talk to, to war veterans about what they, they really experienced, how in a real battle, battlefield, when the battle ends and the smoke clears and, and the loud explosions are, are gone and they're over, instead of feeling a sigh of relief, one of the most grim and unsettling realities for veterans of war experience is is that moment, when, when all the sound and, and, and the, the, the actions of warfare have subsided, one of the most grim moments is, is that point where you just hear the groaning of people at the end of a battle, the groaning of people who are wounded left laying there on the ground. They're wounded and they're, they're groaning for help, for hope, because they, they don't want to bleed out. They're, le- they're seeing limbs across the roadway and they're wondering, does that belong to me? It's the pain of dying. It's the groan of dying. It's this vivid picture that we have here. And that is the word that's used for the groanings that we experience. And the apostle tells us that, that we live in a time of groaning. He says, interestingly enough, that it's not only us who groans, but that creation itself groans. The material world, the created world, in some sense, is groaning too, Paul says. It's groaning because it's giving way to decay and destruction. Scientists call this the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us that the universe as we know it is actually slowing down, not speeding up. That it's actually deteriorating uh, and not progressing. The most encouraging optimist will tell you to shoot for the stars, but even stars eventually die. That's why our bodies break down. That's why the older you get, right, unless you, like, do stuff for your health to work against it, like you just find that you can't do what you used to do. And eventually that catches up to you, regardless of what your health routine looks like. Like it wasn't long ago where I passed this point in this threshold that I realized I couldn't just enjoy dessert anymore in a single moment, right? I have to now feel it for the next few weeks, right? That's one of the things that I love about the Bible, about the Christian scriptures, is how it's totally honest on the topic of suffering and groaning and longing. It doesn't try to to hide or cover the fact that life is hard and that that this world sometimes, it just kind of sucks. It owns it. The scriptures own that reality. It owns the groaning. Like the rest of Romans 8, it invites us to pray and to trust God in the midst of it. Karl Marx often accused religion of being the opiate of the masses, a drug to, dis- to distract us from just the, the pains of the world. But this verse shows us that the gospel isn't a distraction from the pain. It actually acknowledges is the pain. It acknowledges the pain, and it shows us that God has stepped into it with us. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Christmas. The good news of Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. But before we we unpack that, let's talk about why we got this way. How did our world get to this point? Why do we groan? Why do we long for for hope? Point number two is this, where we look at the reason for our longing. What is the reason for our longing? Why does humanity long for hope? If you were to stop like just a random group of people uh, on the side of the road, and ask them what they think of of life in this world, you're going to get a whole host of answers, a myriad of answers. Some are going to talk about um, just the joys and the blessings of this world. Our life is a gift uh, and full of, of, of blessings. Uh, others will, will talk about the difficulties and the tragedies of this world. And the reality is there that to varying degrees, we all experience both. There's this very real tension In the world that we live in, that on the one hand we have this sense that the world is 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 good, that it's got a lot of good in it, that life is a gift, it's full of blessings like like family and like relationship and music and art and parties and and uh, you know build your own pizzas, white elephant gift exchanges. But on the other hand, we also have this sense that something has gone terribly wrong, and so we ask this question: Why is it that we haven't arrived? after all the centuries that humanity has been around, after all the progress, after all our technology that we've advanced in, why do we still have this? Why is it that our soul's groan for something truer, for something better, for something more? The scripture begins by telling the story of how we came to be And it tells us what went wrong. In Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, we read about how God intended the world to to, to be. It tells us about the Creator's beautiful design, how when God made all creation in the beginning, He called it what? He called it good. He steps back, He looks at it every single day, and He says, This is good. This is good. When he spun the stars into existence, when he fashioned the tiniest cells that make up every single creature, all the particles that make up all matter, when he formed mankind from the dust of the ground, he called all of it good. When we read about how he made us humans in his image and in his likeness and how he invited us into his great mission, he invited us into his great purpose to bring the blessings of his truth, goodness, and beauty to the ends of the earth. And he put humanity's first parents in a garden and told them to enjoy the fruit, to till the ground, to enjoy one another, and to expand the borders of the garden to the ends of the world. That is the good life that we were all created for. But then in Genesis 3, something awful happens something horrible, something terrible. What happens? The fall. Theologians call it the fall, where sin enters our world. And our first parents, Adam and Eve, they choose to doubt the goodness of God, uh, uh, to, to doubt God's goodness, to doubt that, uh, the goodness of his, his rule in, our, in their reality, and they choose to go against it. They were creatures deciding to live their lives their own way without the Creator. And that is how we define sin in its truest form. It's when we choose to live as creatures without the creator. We doubt what God reveals in his word, and we choose to live our lives without him, figuratively taking God off his throne and putting ourselves on that throne instead. Sin is basically breaking God's scale. It's where we start to say the things that God has said is, is that what I say is true is true, not what God says. What I say is good is good, but not what God says. What I consider beautiful and satisfying is what's beautiful and satisfying and not what God says. It reduces God and refuses to treat him as glorious, as the center that he needs to be, as the foundation that we should be standing on. And it's not just breaking his scale, it's also breaking God's heart. Sin breaks God's heart, it rejects his love. It makes us addicted to created things instead of the creator. And when this happens, the order of creation gets sort of flipped on its head. Ephesians 2 puts it this way. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is how he describes human beings uh, uh, w- who are born in their sin. Before we taste grace, we are dead in our sins. Verse 3, he says, You were among whom, we, uh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And you were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. These few verses, what it, they tell us something uh, terrifying about sin. It tells us that because of sin, there is life, or, or instead of life, rather, there is death. Instead of life, there's death. Death and decay become part of the human existence. And instead of relationship with God, there's hostility against him. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, realized that they were naked and, uh, and, and ashamed, which has little to do with nudity and everything to do with the state of the human heart. God's original design was for us to never need to hide from one another, to never need to hide from him, to lack the capacity to ever experience shame. Ephesians 2, likewise, says that instead of blessing, because of sin, there is a curse, when sin entered the world, a shadow was cast, a shadow was cast over all of God's good creation. And now the earth, its creatures, and mankind are stained, marred by sin. This is why, as Romans 8 says, our soul groans along with creation itself for things to be restored. We groan, creation groans, because we know that this is not how things are supposed to be. It's almost like we were hardwired to know that. We very much are. We're made in the image of God. That's why we know that. It's why there are things in this world that make us go, things are not right. The reason we long for something better, we long for something more, for something more more whole and fulfilling is because sin has broken what was good and perfect. Sin has broken what was meant to be. And there's a part, of us, there's a part in every single one of us that, that, that knows this. That gnawing in our gut that says there's more, there gotta be more to reality than just, than just this. And so the big answer to what is wrong with the world is sin. Sin has stained all things, that is the cancer. And so, how do we remove it? What is the remedy? Has anything been done about it? This is where we go to our third and last point, where we see the remedy for our longing. We looked at the reality of our longing, the fact that we all long for something more. We looked at the reason for our longing and sin, and now the hope that we were looking forward to, the remedy of our longing. The Bible says that the way that we as Christians are to respond to this longing is through hope, in Jesus, through hope in Jesus. We know that because if sin is the diagnosis, then our hope in Jesus can be seen as the cure. And that is what the Christmas story is all about. That is what Advent is all about. That hope is here. It's here now. It's come. It's happened in history. That's the Christmas story. Hope is here because God came to be with us, to be with us in the fullest sense of that word. He is with us in the mess, and he take, co- took care of it on the cross. If you've been here long enough, you've probably heard me talk about how this common criticism that I get from my skeptical friends against Christianity, is the fact that, that that evil and tragedy exists at all in this world. They'll say things like, if God is so good, then why does, why does this world seem so bad? Why do the bad things seem to happen to oftentimes seemingly good people? Why is there so much evil? Why is there corruption? Why doesn't God do a single thing about that? It's a good question. The only problem is, he has. He has done something about that. That's the point of the gospel. It's the point of the Christmas story. God with us. The whole point of Christianity is that God has come. Jesus came. That's the whole point. There's, the, the, there's this plot summary in the Bible in First Peter chapter one that shows us this great hope, that shows us the hope of our souls, uh, that, how, that what we long for is found in Jesus. He provides a hope that looks back, a hope that looks forward, and a hope that helps us endure in the very present. Let me show you that quickly in 1 Peter chapter one. Verse three, we see that in Jesus, we have a hope that looks back. Verse three says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection in the past, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So what did God do? What is it that God did for our plight, for our problem? for our sin problem. He did the one thing that we could not do, the one thing we could never achieve, the one thing that we don't even deserve. He brought salvation and hope. Our sin brought death to humanity and decay to the world. Jesus brings new life. You see, apart from Jesus, we're all spiritually dead. That's what we read in Ephesians 2. We're not just morally impure. We're not just lost. We're not just ignorant. We're dead dead. Spiritually dead, depraved, unable to respond to the truth of God's word. We're not like, we're not even like a person who's stuck out in the sea and needs a lifesaver thrown out at them. We're like, we're like a decaying corpse at the bottom of the sea that needs to be quickened to new life. That's how desperate we are. We're in desperate need of hope. And it's in that hopelessness that God has sent his son to live the life that we could never live, a perfect and holy life, to die a death that you and I deserve to die on the cross and in our place for our sins. He suffered just like we do, and he experienced the full weight of evil on the cross. One thing we cannot say is that God doesn't care. One thing we cannot say is that God didn't show up. One thing we cannot say is that God doesn't love us or that he's indifferent because the Holy Son of God plunged himself into the fiery furnace of sin, suffering, and evil. We can know that he cares about you and me. Peter says the reason Jesus did this was According to his great mercy. According to his great mercy. Notice he doesn't say it's that it's because we're awesome. We're something special. Or that we're noble and strong and totally worth it. Our hope is not given to us because of anything in us, but because of something in him. It's according to his Great mercy. That makes it so much more mind blowing, so much more beautiful. Now, how does he do it? How does he do this according to his great mercy? He does it by reversing what sin caused. Look still in verse 3. He says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. You were once born dead in your sins, as Ephesians 2 told us, but now you get to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why was Jesus born? So that we could be born again. Why did the Father send him? So that in Christ... We could come back to God as sons and daughters. And so if you want to know the remedy for our longing, the way that we long for hope, the first thing you have to do is look back with hope. Look back to his birth. Look back to the resurrection and find living hope. But then you look forward. Then you look forward. As verse 3 continues, he says, you're born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But then he says in verse 4, to an inheritance, meaning that we're going to get it one day, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, a future time. You see, when Jesus returns, which is a second arrival that Advent is about. Advent is about the first arrival in the Christmas story, but it's also about the arrival of His second coming that we look forward to. You see, Jesus puts something in motion in his first coming that gives us hope. But we still long, don't we? We still groan, don't we? But the promise of all that we have in his first hope gives us security in what he has promised in his second coming all that he's done for us in the first coming points us to the greater hope that we have in his second coming and we're told here that when jesus returns evil suffering suffering and death will be swallowed up completely In final victory, once and for all, Peter says that this inheritance that Jesus gives us is imperishable. He uses the word imperishable. In other words, it can never grow old. It can never retire. It's undefiled. Nobody can vandalize it or change it. It's unfading. In other words, it lasts and lasts and gets better and better every day. So that tells us that no matter what we're dealing with today, no matter how difficult this last year was or these last few years have been, no matter what you're wrestling with, we are moving in Christ toward glory. There's a day and a time where you will experience the fullness of hope. You will experience hope and glory in Christ in all of its fullness. And every dark thing that you've ever seen or experienced will be completely gone, swallowed up, never to be seen again, never to be experienced again, never to be cried over again. And he says in verse 5, by God's power, you're being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, check this out. That Greek word for guarded right there is a, is a word that doesn't show up many times. It's this, and it's a strong word. It's the Greek word phoreo, which it gives us uh, the kind of guarding that happens with a strong fortress. It's a picture of a fortress, That tells us that this God, the God who is our great and mighty fortress, the God who had the wisdom to send Jesus and the Christian a story and bring hope to the world, to to make right every wrong and to undo all evil, to swallow it up whole, this same God is guarding us with a fortress kind of strength. For that day, for that second coming, if you think you don't have the strength, no need to fret because you don't need the strength. God, the capital S strong one, is guarding you for that day. Jesus has secured for us an eternal future where there will be no more groanings for hope, no more grieving over death, no more guilt over our sin, a day with no more shootings in our schools, no more abuse in human relationships, no more tragedy that meets our families, no more prejudice between different people, groups, or social classes, no more oppression in world governments, no more corruption in our churches. Life will finally Once and for all, triumph over death. Mercy and grace will triumph over sin. The truth, goodness, and beauty will rise from the ashes of evil, suffering, tragedy, and a broken world. And so we look back at what Jesus has done. We look forward to our living hope and inheritance. But lastly, we see that in Jesus, we have a hope that presses in and helps us today. First Peter continues, and then we'll finish. In verses six and through seven, six and seven, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here Peter describes how this hope has, this hope that we've been reading about can actually have teeth in the here and now. And he uses the words grief, trial, test. Those are not fun words, right? No one signs up for those. But when Peter uses the phrase, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, what he's talking about is this process that metal goes through when it's refined. When a metalsmith uh, first works with metal, it's in this, this like clunky ore state. Uh, ore isn't usable because it's got blemishes, it's got imperfections, it has no strength, it's pliable, it's got no beauty. That's why nobody has ore hanging around their neck or dangling from their ears. But what a metalsmith does is, is he or she will add this, this white hot heat to transform the ore transform the metal so that its nature can be, can be purified, so all the impurities can melt away, be burned away, to help make it stronger and more beautiful. And when we come to Jesus, when we come to Jesus, we're like a piece of wool. There are times that you're going to struggle in your faith because of suffering that you're enduring or because of evil in the world that you're experiencing. Because of longings that you're wrestling with in prayer. But it's in those moments, the Bible says, that the Son of God applies that white, hot, boiling heat to take your heart to places that you would never intend to go in order to produce in you something that you would never be able to achieve on your own. Our God is passionately committed to purifying and strengthening us. And it's actually only in the hope of the gospel that our trials and our sufferings begin to have meaning. Without the hope of the gospel, our trials and suffering just just end in more uh, trials and suffering. We're just subjected to an eternity of it. With the hope of the gospel, our sufferings and our trials begin to purify us, begin to strengthen us. They get recommissioned. Instead of doing something that, that Satan would use to destroy us, God uses our trials to strengthen us for our good. The moments where we wrestle with God in prayer, if we feel the grief of loss, of pain, and of weakness and lament, those are the moments where, when we're placed in the Lord's hands, he uses them to refine us. And finally, verse 8 and 9 says this, Verse 89 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the hope that we all long for. This is the good news of Christmas, King's Cross, that one day we will see Jesus face to face. He will return and fulfill to the fullest degree the deepest longings of our soul that we've been unpacking and talking about this afternoon. That is the beauty of the Advent season. Advent literally means arrival. It's a time not only to celebrate the first arrival of our Lord when he came as a baby in Bethlehem, but it's a time to look forward to his second arrival as a king in triumph. We live right now in the in-between, what theologians call between the now and the not yet. It's a place of beauty and of tension. Jesus brought us peace, but we long for final peace. Jesus has saved our souls, but will still sin and struggle. We belong to God, but we don't yet feel like we're with him in the fullest sense. What is the good news that you preach to yourself in those moments? This Advent season, I want what you preach to yourself to be that hope is here. Hope is here because of Jesus. Hope for our longings, hope from our sin, hope for the world.
0: Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.